welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. A big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. So welcome to this week's episode. I'm here with Josh Adler, founding CEO of Sourcewater. Josh, welcome to the show. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having us on. Yeah. So I listened to the 2019 version of Josh on Digital Wildcatters Oil and Gas Startups with Colin and Jake there. And I would imagine a lot's changed since then. But I'm curious, you know, back in 2019, there was, you know, quite a few podcasts coming out, but how did you get connected with those guys? And they're friends of mine, which is why I'm curious. I always like to kind of see how that all unfolds. Yeah. You know what? I, at that time, I hadn't really heard of them before. And I don't know, I think they might have reached out to my marketing person about doing something like they'd heard something about us. And I was like, yeah, sure. And, you know, I listened to a few on a drive. Actually, I remember very clearly because I was, I was on a long drive back from a hunting trip the weekend before we were recording on a Monday morning and I wasn't sure if I was going to get back in time. (laughs) And I was listening to their podcast and I had never actually listened to them before. And I was like, oh, these guys are fun, you know? So I was just trying to get a sense of what the, what the mood was. But since then I've become a big fan. So, I mean, I, I listen to them all the time now. Yeah. Well, fun is an understatement when you think of digital wildcatters. Right. <laughs> so, but no, that that's awesome. So you, it's, more okay. a, it's like a fun, it's more like a lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, that's it. But no, it's awesome what they brought to the table. And again, they're buddies of mine, but nonetheless. Okay. So you hunt, you've been always been a big hunter or, or you know, actually not at all. I've only done a few times. It was kind of more of a, you know, some, some friends invited me to have the experience and I've done a few times, but I'm not a, I'm not a okay. regular. Gotcha. I mean, I like the, I'm a, I'm a, you know, pretty good shot at the range, but yeah, it was, it was more of an experience. Hey, you know what? I'm like you, I don't do too much of the hunting and fishing stuff, which is ironic because I'm in oil and gas, but I grew up in British Columbia in the mountains. I spent most of the time on either skis <laughs> or a board of some sorts. So, you know, but you had I, to I, learn to hunt because you had to fight off the yetis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I learned to hunt with my fists. That's about it. Every once in a while, there'd be a raid on our village by the yetis and we had to fight <laughs> yeah. them off with sticks. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised I hadn't seen one. Me and my buddy spent a lot of times backcountry snowboarding. So, We came across quite a few things, but a Yeti was not one of them. (laughs) But anyway, before we dive deep into this, I do want to highlight some fascinating technology provided by our sponsor, Technip FMC. Their new and integrated iComplete ecosystem is digitally enabled and delivers efficiency benefits by dramatically reducing components and connections while simultaneously providing real-time data to operators about the WellPad operations. Technip FMC is continuing to push the limits in order to achieve full-frack automation, to discover more about the, all the benefits of iComplete, click the link in the show notes or check them out on LinkedIn. So, you know, Josh, we've gone through, you know, a pretty interesting year to say the least. I'm curious. So again, I listened to your episode and, and innovation, I think is something that, that you embrace and you really, it's something that has helped you evolve. And so I'm curious, 
how are you innovating this year? I mean, coming out of COVID, oil and gas is looks like there's some you know light at the end, end of the tunnel. Demand is picking up. There's some activities, you know, rumbling, money being thrown back into our industry, hopefully a little bit. But but how are you innovating? Whether that's personal, business, marketing, what, what are you what are you really focused on right now? Mm, that's such a question, Justin. I mean, I'm you know going through 2020 we had you know big staff reductions we had big revenue reductions like everybody else you know i've looked up some of the public companies there's a few of them where i've looked and i'm like you know what we did better than them yeah <laughs> probably uh, which doesn't better. mean which doesn't mean we were doing well but one thing we did not do is really cut back on our development capacity and so in some ways that whole year was you know there was a lot of bad business news but the good news was that we were investing heavily in advancing our product the whole time kind of behind the scenes and so there were lots we didn't launch our our SaaS based data service until really right at the end of 2018 and so 2019 was like the debut year you know where we signed a lot of people up got a lot of feedback and then 2020 really gave us a chance to go back you know, not to the drawing room, that's the wrong thing, but like go back to just working on product and taking that feedback and making everything better. And then during the course of that, we we have also been incorporating some really new technologies that nobody in this industry has ever even seen before. And, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about those now or later, but that's the part that I kind of get excited about. I like the creative aspect of it. Yeah, no. And we're, we're going to touch on that. Absolutely. And so, well, actually, you know what? Look, let's dive into it. I mean, I can tell you you're on a roll and I certainly don't want to you know change the trajectory of the conversation. So well, tell us about that then. Like you said, you innovated, you, you spent a lot of money or I say a lot, but you know, you really managed your, I would imagine cash flow or capital in a way that you could become stronger coming out of this. And so what have you developed and, and what do you, what do you have coming down the pipeline? You know, we're obviously our name source water. So we're, we're known for providing water data analytics around upstream market activity and where's all the produced water coming from and going to, and, you know, where's the water sourcing coming from and going to, and all the analysis around that and mapping that out in some unique ways. But what we've really grown into is a holistic energy intelligence platform of which water is a foundational component, but trying to figure out all the things about water movements and usage on the surface and in the subsurface, you know, where's it, where's it coming out of underground? Where's it going into when it's injected? What are the impacts of that? Figuring all that stuff out basically forced us to do all of the oil and gas data work too. We had to do all of it to be able to make sense of the water data. And so we created this whole integrated data platform with all of the oil, gas, water production, all of the water and gas injection, and all the movements between all these things on the surface and into the subsurface. And where that took us was starting to incorporate new kinds of data sources that are really different from what's been traditionally seen in energy intelligence. Can you talk a little bit about like historically, you know, the traditional way of doing that? Yeah. I mean, you know, look, when you think about the kind of the big gorilla energy intelligence companies out there and a lot of the, the little bitty ones run around too, they pretty much all do the same thing, which is they scrape drilling permits from the railroad commission and they chew them up to some extent or not, and they stick them on a map. And, you know, 40 years ago, that probably came on a, well, what was 40 years ago? That probably came on a floppy disk 40 years, probably came on an eight track 40 years ago. And then, you know, 20 years ago, it came on a CD-ROM in the mail. And then, you know, 15, 
10 years ago, it was coming through the web, you know, or through an FTP, but it's still the same stuff. And we had, I was really skeptical about that in the early days of source water. I was like public data, you know, anybody can do it. It's public. It, there's no value in that. Who cares? turns out you actually have to do it because it's the context for everything that happens. It's kind of like the gold standard, except yeah. it's not a gold standard. It's like a rusty bronze standard, but at least it's a standard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, point. literally I had a team meeting this morning, just coincidentally, we had one of our development team meetings this morning and we were reviewing how we'd had a customer complain that they had a, there were two UIC permits with the same API number, but they, they had to be different wells. And I know this is super obscure, but basically like API number is supposed to be the unique identifier for every, every hole in the ground in the, in the world, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so people think that they're correct. Okay. <laughs> they're Which not. Is- they are not correct. So, I mean, most of them, yeah, they're correct, but like a lot of them are wrong. And so what we discovered was we had found something like 570 wells, disposal wells in Texas, where they were having two different injection reports filed for the same API number. And it turns out it's because somewhere in the railroad commission, somebody made a mistake and switched a number in the API number so that you ended up with the same API number for two different wells. And now people are complaining to us, like, that's not my well. And we're like, uh, that's what it says from the, from the regulatory data. Yeah. And we, we dug in and we got the bottom of, it. I'm telling you, there's something like this every single day. And so then we're like, well, what do we do? Do we just show this list to the railroad commission and be like, Hey, somebody over there screwed up and you're basically requiring certain kinds of inspections on the wrong wells when you were supposed to be inspect, you know, cause some of these it's, inspect each year and other ones that are higher risk for whatever reason, it's inspect every month. And if you miss an inspect or inspect every week, and if you miss an inspection, we're going to shut down your well. And those are going on on the wrong wells. Okay. So anyway, I'm off on a tangent, but like you go deep on this, the regulatory data and okay, I got to admit there is a real art to it. Okay. So (laughs) yeah, (laughs) it is actually really hard to do the regulatory data well, I admit it, you know, mea culpa. Okay. We've had a few years of learning our lesson and now we've gone like deeper into it than anybody, but leaving that aside, like what's the, what's the new part, right? So, okay. You got to have good regulatory data as basically the framework, the context of knowing what else is going on, right? At least you know where the wells are. Yeah. And where we got into this was as we were trying to show the water activity in the market, we, during the, the last up cycle, you know, I guess we'll call that 2017, 2018, we started to have people wanting to find water for fracks again, you know, after a real quiet 2015, 2016. And we realized, you know, the best place to get water is from an existing water pit, an existing frack water pond impoundment, because that water is literally blowing away in the sun. It's just getting wasted. And whoever owns that pit is excited when they hear from us that, hey, we can help you sell water, you know, and, and otherwise it's just getting wasted. And so we were like, well, how do we find all the people who own frack water ponds? Let's look them up in the regulatory data. Oops. Turns out there is nothing. So if you're a surface owner in the great state of Texas, and you want to dig a ditch on your land and put down a plastic liner and pump it full of groundwater from your wells and sell that to an oil company, that is your God-given right as a Texan. There is no time in that process where you need to tell the government what you're up to. Now, there's some edge cases where people would argue with me, but basically, 
there is no meaningful regulatory data or government data of any kind on where frack pits are, who owns them, what's in them, how much is in them. There's a few exceptions, but for the most part, these are completely invisible to not just government, but to the industry, right? There's no way for you to know who's got a frack pond around you with water available unless you literally see it with your own eyes. Really? So, so do you, and I'm a drilling operations guy. So, so this is kind of interesting to me, you know, but so if operators or let's just say landowners have water, I mean, do they just market it by talking to their buddies or talking to, you know, offset operators and, and, and there's no real marketplace for it, I'm assuming, maybe, or? Basically, well, my original idea with source water was exactly to create the marketplace for that. It was an online marketplace for water sourcing, recycling, disposal, and oil and gas industry. And we still have that. We did that. But that's not really the business. That's not just not the business today. It's just kind of one of the data feeds we get. And there is a whole lot of reasons why it's tough to create a marketplace for water. Man, I could give you a week-long seminar on that. We should probably just skip it. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> yeah. that was my life for a lot of years oh, and a lot of, a lot of headaches and a lot of learning stuff that I didn't know. Man, I And bet. that most people still don't know. Okay. So it's one of those things like when you first hear the idea, it sounds super obvious. Like, yeah, why do we have that? Actually, there's reasons. Okay. Well, if anyone's interested, you can blow up Josh on LinkedIn. I'm sure he'd love to talk about it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, if anybody wants to listen, I'm ready to talk. Yeah. But so, and we do still have it, by the way. It's just, it's, it's, it's free. It's like a free data source, right? Okay. Because people won't actually click to buy like on Amazon, but they were using our marketplace a lot to research water price and availability. And that's when we realized, you know, we're providing this valuable free data service, the oil and gas industry, and that's not my charity of choice. No so kidding. let's turn this thing from a hobby into a business. What do we need to do? We need to sell the data rather than trying to collect transaction fees because people aren't buying and selling online, but they are searching and researching and listing online. And that's what kind of turned into the this big evolution for us into the data service. And so one of the first steps in that was, okay, you know, how do we get all of these water pits listed basically in the marketplace, right? How do we find them? How do we find who owns them? Turns out other than sort of socializing, how are you going to find these? And by the way, for those who don't know, the Permian Basin by itself is the size of the nine smallest U.S. states combined. So <laughs> it's a lot pick of land any to cover. one of those states, pick Rhode Island. Would you drive around Rhode Island trying to find swimming pools in people's backyards that you could ask them if you could borrow some of that water? That would never work. Okay, yeah, unless you had a lot of time on your hands. Like, is like thirty Rhode Islands. Okay, <laughs> so how do we find them? Well lightning struck. And I was like, you know, maybe we can see squares of water in a desert from space. You know, maybe that shows The obvious up. answer is you should, you probably can. Probably can. But nobody ever done this before. Like nobody, this was 2017. And so, you know, kind of commercial satellite data was still pretty darn new thing. I mean, it still is really new. You know, the ways you can use satellite imagery, there's just a lot of Satellites getting launched and becoming commercially available, but it was pretty recent when all you had was government and military satellites and, and that stuff wasn't available. So we started working on systems to spot the squares of water in the desert and the Permian from space. Turns out it works pretty well. The hard part is not seeing the water. That is super easy. The hard part is removing all of the things that are water, but that are not frack pits. That's hard. It may be proprietary, but is there, are there like certain 
code or algorithm or something or something that like identifies that or how does that how do you we use a mix of basically rules-based analytics and machine learning and artificial intelligence so we have machine learning models that train on what and that's i mean we've had 13 u.s patents granted now and we've got a bunch more on the way and most of those relate to ways of analyzing satellite imagery and other kinds of data to be able to recognize oil field activity and oil field features in a, in a reliable, low cost way. Wow. And when you say reliable, like, are you talking like 90% accuracy? Are you talking 99.9 or what, or does it vary? Yeah. It, I mean, it, it varies when you really get into the subtleties because like, yeah, we're recognizing a lot of stuff in satellite imagery now that's been part of the, that's been part of the journey. Right. So yeah, once we started seeing the frack ponds and matching those up to surface ownership records and drilling permits and understanding what's going on around these and who's using them. And even, you know, is this a freshwater pit or a produced water recycling pit, that kind of thing, how much water's in it, how much is available around here? How's that changing? Then we started to realize there were two Eureka moments there, right? After the first, Oh, we can use satellite imagery. The next one was, you know, we were trying to validate our results on the satellite imagery. So in other words, is the water that we're seeing in what we think, what our computer thinks are frack ponds, does that actually match up to some other standard in the industry that tells us we're on the right track? Mm. And so we started comparing this to, we actually did a, a study with University of Texas Bureau of Economic Geology to analyze just that, to publish together. And what they were using was, let's call it Big Gorilla Energy Data Company, you know, and what Big Gorilla Energy Data Company was using was taking data on frack injection volumes from the only public source of that, which is an organization called Frack Focus, which you might have heard of. Frack Focus is basically a product of a nonprofit in Oklahoma called GWPC. And so okay. operators voluntarily report how much water and some chemicals they injected. In some states, it's required. But this is basically the only source of how much water got injected in a frack. And so what we saw in this study that we were doing with EG was hey, the volumes of water we're identifying in certain counties in the Permian in our satellite imagery, wow, they're matching really closely to you know the trend, at least, from the volumes in frack focus. And then the frack focus water volumes are kind of eh, drifting off, drifting off, drifting off, this is gone. And this is like spring 2018, I'm looking back at 2017. And so I'm like, this is weird. You know, if, if we were looking at 2015, it would make sense that like water injected volumes are just crashing. But this is 2017 we're looking at. The, the industry is on the upswing right now. Water should be going up, not down. What's going on here? And I really did kind of scratch my head. I'm like, this is so strange. Why are they showing less and less water being used? And we're showing more and more. And then I realized, oh, it's because the frack focus data is six to nine months out of date. So by the, time that the, by the time that the operator does the frack, reports the water, it gets to frack focus, it gets into their system, it gets out of their system into big gorilla energy data company system, it gets out of that system, somewhere between six and nine months have passed, plus a lot of people file late, there's all this kind of roll data rolling in. And so essentially, if you look 12 months in the past, you're at, you know, 99%. If you look six months in the past, you're at like 50%. And if you look at three months in the past, you're at zero. And so it looked like the water was dropping off, but really what was happening is they're just, you know, six to 12 months behind the times in the data that the industry is relying on. And so Eureka moment number one was, but we're looking at satellite imagery literally from yesterday. Yeah. So our data, we're not, we're not looking into the future. You know, that's pretty hard. 
we're now casting, right? We're not forecasting, we're now casting. Yeah, we're seeing yeah. what happened yesterday when the whole energy intelligence industry is looking at what happened three, six, 12 months ago. And so everyone's backward looking, everybody's out of date, everybody's wrong, but we're seeing <laughs> what happened yesterday. So huh. that was like, aha, number one, right? It was like, ah, oh, that's why this is useful. And then we realized, you know, there's actually a lot of other interesting stuff happening on the ground that we can see in satellite imagery, not just the frack ponds, right? We're seeing the well pads get built. We're seeing the reserve pits. We're seeing the roads as they get constructed, the lease roads. You know, we're seeing, there's just all kinds of stuff moving around. We're seeing the equipment move around. And that's what kind of took us down this road of, oh, you know, how, how do we incorporate that stuff to create more of a real-time supply chain intelligence platform that isn't just relying on the old regulatory data because the regulatory data, I mean, we've actually kind of covered all three issues right now, right? One, the regulatory data is out of date, usually. There's some items that aren't, like drilling permits, very current. They get updated daily. But a lot of other stuff is 12 plus months out of date when you're relying on the regulatory data. The regulatory data is often incomplete. And we talked about that too. It just kind of, it rolls in, but a lot of operators file stuff late. I mean, that's just the norm and nobody's ever getting fined or, you know, even slapped on the wrist. It's like, you know, it's just something you're supposed to do, but nobody's following up on that. Yeah. And then the third thing is a lot of times there's stuff in the regulatory data that's just wrong. It's inaccurate. And whether that's, I mean, there's so many examples of that I could tell you, and it's maddening because we get blamed for it, right? Like, <laughs> right, yeah. We got some I'm just a messenger, like, yeah. Exactly. We get some customer, I mean, this happens literally every day. We've got some customer or we've got some sales prospect and they're like, all right, look at that lease there. Okay, zoom in on that well there. What the heck are you showing? That is not what came out of that well. And we're like, hey, this is what the railroad commissioner, the OCD reported. Let me take you to the original, let me take you to the original record, right? And show it to you. Oh, there's two different API numbers for the same well or whatever it is, you know? Right, There's yeah. a number, somebody left a dot out before the two zeros at the end, or they put a comma where there should have been a dot, or there's a, you know, a five, but they read it as an S. Every yeah. day, everything, it's, there's just so many mistakes when you start digging into it. Well, yeah. it's just horrifying. <laughs> well, it's like they say junk in, junk out. And I mean, we're seeing that we've seen it a lot, especially in this whole digitalization era where, yeah, it's good to have stuff on digital and data that you can analyze. But if you're not getting good data in, then everything you're analyzing, there could be a lot of error or missed assumptions or you like, you know, kind of the experience you're talking about. So I've been, you know, privy to that frustration as well, but I can imagine going through it every day must be extremely frustrating. <laughs> and then we have to get, we spend, we figure it out. And I'm like, wow, we have this really obscure base of knowledge that like I got somebody value someday <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when the apocalypse comes. On no judgment day. But yeah, I mean, one way to look at it, for example, is we mapped all the permit locations. So one of the things we developed, like the next thing we developed after the, the frack pond, analytics and tracking was well pad detection. That was like the next big obvious one to do because we had a suspicion that in a lot of cases, a well pad gets built in advance of a drilling permit being filed. Not that there's anything wrong with that, at least not in Texas, right? I mean, it's just a type of construction. If you're bonded and you have your lease, you can start to build roads. You can, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that it's a security violation or whatever, but just in terms of understanding what's happening in the supply chain, if it turns out that well pads are getting built before a permit gets filed, well, we can tell you who's going to drill where before the permit. And, you know, today everybody just chases permits, right? So what if we could give you an edge 
and show you who's going to drill where so you can get on that deal sooner than somebody who's just waiting for the permit to come out. So we started building these systems for detecting well pads. And it turns out, as with frack ponds, but a lot worse, it's easy to see that some dirt moved around, but it's really hard to know whether that dirt was going to be a well pad or whether it was going to be a home site or a, a barn or a harvest or a, you know, a traffic stop or something, right? So, or for that matter, just wind blowing some dirt around and it's erosion. Yeah. So yeah. building the systems that both, you know, never, that never miss a real well pad, but try not to confuse non well pad things with well pads is pretty tough. So with that data though, like you said, you're gathering that data even before wells get permitted. Do you then tie it back to the operator or do you just know there's a well here and then, or how, how do you kind of connect that? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of scenarios, but the, there's kind of, there's kind of two main cases, right? There's well pad before permit and permit before well pad. So permit before well pad is easy because the permits actually get updated every day. In fact, a few times a day, we download them. The well pads, the question became, okay, literally no one has ever detected well pads before independently of anything else. Like there's no, nothing is ever tracked about well pads, right? Even less so than frack ponds. And so how, do, how does anybody know what the time and probability relationship is between a well pad appearing, a drilling permit being filed, and a well being spudded? How, does, how would you ever know that, right? And so you talk to people and different people you talk to give you completely different answers with total confidence, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like you talk to some mineral guy and he's like, well, everybody knows 20% of the well pads get built before a permit and 80% don't, or everybody knows that never happens, or everybody knows it's, you know, 50, 50. It's like, okay, what's the actual answer? You, who did you hear that from? So we actually did a study working with finance PhD at Rice, where we analyzed every single well spudded in the Permian in 2018, 2019, almost 13,000 wells. And we looked for every single one of them. When did the well pad show up in our historical satellite analytics. When was the drilling permit first a submitted, able to be seen by anybody? When did the well get spudded? And were there any cases where you had one of the three without the other two or two of them without the third? How do those all relate to each other? And so the results were actually really interesting. So we found that consistently in both Texas and New Mexico, about one in three well pads shows up before a drilling permit. And when the well pad shows up before the drilling permit, it often shows up a pretty long time ahead, like a few months ahead. And that kind of makes sense because what determines when the well pads get built is things more like contractor availability and work schedules and that kind of thing, as long as you know that you're going to be working on that lease. The other side of it though, so like in one third, it's not like we're not giving the drilling permits too, right? So you're just getting an edge, right? In one third of cases, you're able to know what's happening sooner than if you were just waiting for the permits to come out. That's still but a pretty good chunk. It is. It's meaningful for sure. The although, if you kind of divide it out across every well, you know, it ends up being a handful per week if you know we spread it out. But the other side of it, in some ways, was kind of more surprising, more interesting, which is a large portion of drilling permits either never get drilled or they don't get drilled for a long time. Yeah. And so, if you're in a business that involves chasing drilling permits, you're wasting a lot of your efforts chasing permits that no one's actually going to act on anytime soon. And when you think about that, it makes sense because getting a permit is, is something like $250 at the Railroad Commission. And at least in Texas, 
as long as you you know have all your paperwork in place, you're going to get a drilling permit approved within a day or two of asking for it. So there's no risk there. You're doing it the last minute and you know it's not a big deal if you end up not using it. There wasn't a lot of sunk cost there. But a well pad can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to build, right? At least it's certainly always more than $100,000. So when somebody builds a well pad, you know they're really serious about drilling there. They wouldn't waste that money. And so it turns out that there's a lot of drilling permits out there that don't have a well pad under them yet. And it's hard to say when or if they're going to get drilled. But as soon as that well pad starts being built, now you know they're serious. They're going to do it. And they're probably going to do, they're probably going to drill there in the next 30 days. Yeah. Yeah. And so combining the two gives you a much more confident, higher predictive result on who's going to drill where. So it's not just about seeing what's going to happen earlier. It's about seeing what's going to happen with more confidence and reliability. So you're not wasting efforts chasing stuff that's not going to happen. Yeah. Wow. That's on the well pad front, right? And so we just kept kind of going down that. We just kind of kept chasing that rabbit, I guess. So, you know, seeing the lease roads, like we've built systems for mapping all the lease roads and turning them into navigational vectors because we found that basically when we polled oil field drivers, we found that the average oil field driver says they spend about 30 minutes a day, every day, lost on lease roads. Just, you know, getting between different well sites that aren't in Google, aren't in Waze, aren't in Apple. Oh, yeah. And so that's another thing that we're able to do by putting this stuff together. No kidding. But that kind of takes us into the mobile data analytics part, which is actually where stuff gets like pretty, pretty wild when you see what you know you're able to do by literally tracking almost every single person hour by hour in the entire region. Yeah. That oh, I can imagine the type of analytics that can come out of that potentially. And is then that's something that that's not really been done, has it? You know, like with a lot of these things, I guess because I don't I don't know enough to not know. <laughs> <laughs> Which is okay. It's yeah, you know, the kind of beginner's mindset or, you know, like I'm, you know, I've only been in the industry now for I guess about eight years. So it's been a long eight years. But <laughs> you know, I don't it doesn't occur to me that something hasn't been tried or has been tried. So Here's where we got into this, which is we were trying to figure out, is there a better way to figure out water trucks, where water trucks are picking up and delivering salt water? In fact, what I specifically wanted to figure out during the last upturn, and hopefully we're we're in another one now, Mm. is can we figure out the waiting times, the standby times at all of the commercial salt water disposals in real time? Because back from our marketplace days, we were trying to help people make better decisions about where to send your produced water for disposal. So obviously one factor is, okay, how far are the different disposals from you in this spot or wherever your truck is? Two, what are they charging? What are their prices, right? Because there's some trade-off, like you might want to drive further to get to a lower cost facility, or you might want to, you know, pay more to have a shorter drive. But then there's another big factor there, which is what are the standby times? What are the waiting times at the disposals? Because there are places, not just in the Permian, places in Oklahoma, where for whatever reason, you'll get hours long lines of trucks stacking up at a disposal. And there's different reasons for that. Like one big reason is because there's free tacos, you know, yeah, <laughs> or, you know, a good barbecue there or whatever, you know, there's other reasons too. Like 
the logistics guy or at the company you know, that's producing the water, maybe they've only got one facility in the area that their supply chain people actually approved. And so they're having to send everything to this one place, even though there's others around. And so it just causes a giant bottleneck. There's a whole bunch of different reasons. And of course, you know, right? so two companies are, are fracking at the same time and they're having flow back on the same time and nobody's coordinating. And all of a sudden there's, you know, 800 trucks on the same day trying to find a place to go. And there's only a couple of disposals around there that take trucks and you get these crazy lines. So for the disposal folks, sort of good problem to have, unless you're pissing somebody off and then they get mad and all that. So <laughs> how do we find those waiting times? That was actually what I was trying to answer. And we talked to a bunch of disposal companies like, do you have video cameras that show the lines stacked up? You know, mm, sometimes no, nobody's watching them. Is there a guy there? We can text him and just ask him, how long is the waiting time right now? Nah, a lot of places, there's no guy. You know, there's all that stuff, right? Is there some way to figure this out? And so that's, that got me thinking about cell phones, right? Can we create some kind of app that every single water truck driver would want so that we could know how long they're sitting there and start to map that out so that the logistics people, whether at the 3PL type companies or at the operator or at the hauling company, the dispatcher could just make better decisions to be able to get more jobs done every day for less cost and not have people just sitting there doing nothing. And then what we, what we realized kind of going along this journey is there's actually commercial databases of cell phone locations. So there's companies that are just in this business. And by the way, you know, like I was saying earlier, like don't hate the player, hate the game. Yeah. <laughs> if you own a cell phone, you're being tracked. Okay. Just let's, you know, that's not us. Yeah. That's your cell phone company. That's hey. Google. That's Apple. They call you it a, a cell phone, phone on you. Yeah. There's people who know where you are. Okay. They call it a now, smartphone for a reason. Right. <laughs> so let's get that one out of the way. But the now, to be fair, sort of, I think there's laws. I don't know if it's a federal law, but almost every state, probably feds, have a law that says they got to take your name off the phone location before they sell it to anybody. Okay. okay. So you're, you know, quote, quote unquote, anonymized. All right. So, you know, where a lot of the cell phone tracking stuff, I think has gotten a lot of attention was in the, in the last year with the COVID lockdowns Yeah, because you started seeing all these news stories about, you know, in March, 2020, people who live in New York city were leaving their, their homes 96% less than they were the month before, right? Everybody's staying home. How do we know that? Oh, from looking at this, did the cell phone leave the leave its location at any point in 24 hours or just sit there for 24 hours. And then, you know, they might be like, well, people in Wyoming are going out twice as often and having a great time. You know, <laughs> how do they know that? Well, because they're following them when they leave and yeah. they're staying out late. So we, you know, we kind of put this stuff together. We were already doing some work around it even before that, but we started tapping into those mobile phone tracking databases. And it, it really seems like this has been used in some industries, like in retail, especially like, where do you put the next Starbucks? You know, where are a lot of people walking by, are they stopping that kind of thing? There's a lot of it in retail. Oh, I bet. Seem to be the first company that thought of using this stuff for upstream real-time supply chain analytics. And so we filed a lot of patents on it. Some of them we've gotten granted. We filed a lot, got a lot of patents granted on the, on the satellite imagery stuff too. And we started putting together mobile phone location data with the satellite imagery, with the regulatory data, putting all three together to get this kind of real-time supply chain insight. And you do need all three. Like That's wild. For example, if you were 
trying to like we literally have access to data for the whole like every single person moving around the whole United States, right? But processing that is insanity. Like oh, you have a you know million dollar bill with Amazon this month. <laughs> you tried <laughs> to do that, right? Now, some people can afford that, right? We can't, and we can't get our customers to pay that kind of money. So how do you narrow it down? Oh, well, you can use the satellite imagery to say, okay, here's where all the well pads are. And here's all the well, and then use the regulatory data to say, okay, and we're only going to look at the well pads that definitely have at least one permit on them. And now let's just look at those because that's actually a really small area. Let's only look at anybody who visits one of those. And now you've got a manageable amount of data. By the way, we have a patent on that <laughs> in case anybody's thinking about it. Right. No, that's good. And now it's actually manageable. So then we can say, hey, the satellite imagery is showing us that it looks like a whole lot of equipment showed up on this well pad yesterday. Well, we don't exactly know what kind of equipment it is, but we can see something's going on. Oh, you know, now, and the computer's doing this. It's not literally like, you know, the coach and the, you know, on the sideline, like calling the play. We're not <laughs> right. calling the play, right? We've built rules around this. And so then, you know, you start looking at, okay, well, who's showing up there? And, you know, we're seeing everybody. We don't know their names. We don't know their names, but we know where they came from and we know where they go to and we know how long they're there. And so, you know, we start to say, okay, you know, look at all these people who showed up hour by hour on that pad with that equipment. All right, that is a frat crew. And not only is that a frat crew that's there like an hour ago, but we know who's frat crew because we know the operator and we know where they brought the equipment from because we know where it was parked and we know which business name is on that address at the yard yeah. and we know where they went from there. And you know we can even see the individual sand trucks showing up where did they get the sand from? When did they show up? Oh, they're getting ready for a frack. They're starting to stockpile the sand in advance. Okay, where's that coming from? How long are they sitting there? We see the individual water trucks showing up, maybe with the fresh water for the, you know, for the mud pit or with the salt water that they're taking away for the flowback. How many trucks? How much water is that? Where are they going? And we're seeing it, you know, a portion of it we're seeing literally within an hour. It takes three to five days to kind of get all the data in to really have the definitive answer because some of it rolls in at different time periods. So it kind of gets matched up over about the first five days. Yeah. But yeah, we're able to see the movements of everybody. We could say something like, hey, was there somebody who was supposed to be at your tank battery last night at 1 a.m. because somebody was there for a while and then they went to a midstream terminal and it looks like they might have dropped off a big load of crude oil. Were they supposed to do that? Or <laughs> yeah, it's like pretty crazy. So wow. In terms of productizing that, the thing that we're about to come out with is something that we're calling Frackscape. And basically, it's, it's daily pinpoint tracking of every frack spread in the Permian day by day, Jeez. which has never existed before. Like, this goes to the regulatory thing about regulatory data being, you know, late, incomplete, inaccurate. Because today, if you want to see where the completions happened, it's about a six-month delay between when it actually happens and when it comes out of the Railroad Commission, plus or minus a few months, called three to nine months, but six months is like the average. So there's like a six-month dark period between when an operator fracks a well and starts production and when the world knows about it. And that matters for financial reporting stuff. It matters a lot for duck inventory, drilled but uncompleted wells, because those are going to get completed first or the lowest cost. Well, how many have been completed? Where are right. they going to go next? Where's production going to start? Where are the oil field services demand for that? Where are the minerals going to start paying out? 
And we're able to see that like within a day where the whole industry right now, if you're looking at it on an operator or locational basis, basically has to wait six months. So there's some, yeah, there's some big impacts of that. That's insane. So, I mean, because you could lead that into not only just frack, but other services, whether it's cementers, whether it's, I mean, really almost, I say any service, but it depends. Because I mean, if you've got, say, a service company that you know buys wholesale and goes to another yard, I'm sure there's some nuances there. But with frack, especially, like you said, you, you know, if you know where they've come from and they end up on location, chances are, you know, the company that's providing that service. But I mean, are you looking to like kind of cast your net over multiple services or is there value there? I mean, what, what's the vision, I guess, in the next yeah. like, five to 10 years? Cause I think there's the potential is unbelievable. It's just a matter of, you know, properly scaling it. And like you said, having the, the capacity to crunch the data and do whatever it is that you do in the background. <laughs> yeah. You know, great question, Justin. Cause it, because remember, it came from this idea of let's track the water trucks, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's where this came from. And so we've been able to prove internally that we are able to do that, but we haven't turned it into a product yet because we realized that the more people care about the frack crews and where they are than care about where the water trucks are going. Not sure. Sure. It's still important, but yeah. there's a big difference. <laughs> Don't there. worry, water folks, you're important still. And actually an interesting, an interesting implication of this also is we're tracking the rig crews also using this method. And it in some ways, we're actually getting the drilling information better than you know who, because they only get the commercial rigs, right? They have GPS trackers on the commercial rigs, but about a quarter of the market is operator-owned rigs who don't let third parties put trackers on their rigs. We get those too. So, because we get the people, we're not tracking the rig, we're tracking the people. And, you know, one guy goes to Bucky's and we're not saying, oh, they're drilling at Bucky's, right? But like if 30 guys show up on a well pad that has an undrilled permit and last time they did that, they were drilling, okay, there's a well getting drilled here. It doesn't matter whether the drilling company is, you know, Pioneer or, you know, H&P, we're going to get them either way. Do you ever come up and, and I think, I mean, to me, the obvious question is, is like, do you ever get people coming to you saying, Hey, like, we think that's, you know, like, cause there's just this huge thing about privacy nowadays and everyone's like, Oh, you're infringing on my privacy. It's like, well, you decided to buy the phone. Like it's really, it's, you know, hold yourself accountable. But when you're, you know, satellite looking at rigs and, and, you know, movement, how do you kind of navigate that? Because I would imagine there are people and especially operators, a lot of, they hold a lot of stuff close to their chest. There's, one in particular that I know is like very like, let's not show or tell anybody anything, even oh, if you I know that one, I know the one you're thinking of, <laughs> right? The color matches my hat, you know? So, but like, how do you get around? And I mean, obviously you've done your due diligence to protect yourself, but do you ever see that being an obstacle that you won't be able to get over? Or have you already kind of looked around the corner to make sure that doesn't become an issue? You know, I mean, look, scouting other companies and what they're doing has been a thing probably since, you know, since Santa Rita number one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Before that, right? Since Spindletop. So of course, that's always going to be going on, you know, people flying drones, whatever. The thing with drones is, you know, unless you're above a certain altitude, you can't fly them over someone else's property. So it's going to get shot down, right? That's why we got to use the satellites <laughs> and not the drones. Yeah. So, you know, it's just the way of the world that everything is getting known, right? I mean, don't go on Facebook, you know, <laughs> but also everything we're doing is for a business purpose, which is the regulations and policies around that are very different from tracking individuals and personal data. 
Uh, okay. So, you know, mapping what businesses are doing for business purposes is very different from saying, I saw where this guy parked his truck every night and, you know, that's where he lives and that's his name, or maybe that's not where he lives. <laughs> so that's okay. I mean, it's, you know, and, and there's also different state regulations around this stuff. And again, we're, we're such a bit player in this. I mean, our niche is so tiny compared to the bigger sort of retail and, and personal data industries out there. And, you know, Facebook's billions and all that, which is entirely built on, you know, mining personal data. We're not mining personal data, we're mining business data. And if we're, if that means we're able to call out an operator who on their, you know, quarterly public analyst conference call said they had a certain number of ducks and they had a certain cycle time for drilling and a certain cycle time from completions. And you know what? We can see that's wrong <laughs> because wow. we can see exactly how many days every single one of your rigs was on every single pad, how many days every single one of those frack crews was on every single pad. And we know exactly how many ducks you have and how many producing wells as of a couple days ago. Right. Yeah. So there's some, you know, if, if you're, if you're misrepresenting that, you know, or the truth is they're not misrepresenting it. They just don't know. <laughs> so right. they're making no, it up. Could, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it makes sense. People could be, yeah, you're about to expose a lot of people right now. So there's, you know, there is that, I mean, in terms of the supply chain analytics, I mean, one of the things that's kind of fun here, although I don't know if it pays anything is we do see every sort of thing happening and showing up on the well pad, just like you were asking about. And a lot of times we have no idea what they are. Right. Of course, so, yeah. you know, like my data guys will be like, you know, this is interesting. This certain type of person always shows up like right before drilling starts or right after drilling ends or, you know, kind of in this relationship to where the rig is. What is that? You know, and then, you know, we'll sort of speculate about it and we'll ask some people and sometimes you get an answer and sometimes we don't. It's like, oh, that's the company, man. That's the guy who's just always there. The one guy who's always there, you know? Yeah. That's why we see him all through. Cause it's like, why is there one guy who never leaves? You know, we see that Jeez. or, you know, certain kinds of trucks. Oh, that's the, that's pad cleaning crew. You know, that's the well clean out crew. Oh, that's the artificial lift crew going into install the artificial lift six months later. You know, we're seeing all of those. So part of the process here is just figuring out the rules that establish that stuff. Cause there's a lot of activity where, you know, we can be showing this to a customer and, you know, we're saying, look, there's the frack. And they're like, well, that wasn't a frack. The frack had already ended. That was a few days after the frack. Well, okay. What was it that was happening there? Cause what we know for sure is this is definitely a well pad. There's definitely a well there. And there's definitely a whole lot of people showing up on these days. Okay. That, <laughs> that there's no question about yeah. what are those people really doing? Well, okay, now there's some room for interpretation and trying to understand that. And, you know, maybe the frack crew left and now these are the cleanup people and we've accidentally kind of rolled them in with the frack crew. That could be, you know, maybe it's the flowback people showing up or whatever. So that is kind of part of the puzzle, right? You know, understanding which parts do we know for sure and which parts we're really just speculating and how do we make that useful or, or kind of, you know, distill it into business intelligence that people can actually act on. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating stuff. I mean, I really, you know, unfortunately I had the, the pleasure of talking with Ian before and he's the one who helped line this up and it sounds like he, uh, he joined a fantastic team and, and for what you guys are doing, he scratched the surface, but man, it's incredible to see the type of potential and, and what we can do. I mean, it's just something I never even really considered, but you know, you, you said, you know, for companies that are chasing drilling permits, you know, my career outside of podcasting is directly tied to rig counts and permits. And so this 
I mean, sparks my interest very well. So I'm, I'm sure we will we'll have some maybe offline discussions, but do you ever see yourself getting into a position to get outside of oil and gas? Do you see value in other markets, whether it be renewables, other energy, you know, ecosystems, construction? I mean, do you kind of see anything beyond this? Because I feel like conceptually, this can apply to anything. You know what? I did not give you that question to ask, but I'm glad you asked it. (laughs) You know, that is something I'm always kind of thinking about because we, you know, we do want to expand and certainly there's this huge movement toward ESG. I mean, for our purposes, it's really the, the E that matters, the environmental part in the whole kind of upstream oil and gas industry and broadly. And of course, Texas is the number one or number two state for every kind of renewable power too. You know, a lot of times these things are happening on the same property. Yeah. You know, there's there's solar panels, there's windmills, there's oil wells, maybe there's geothermal, all this stuff's going on at the same time. And so I definitely think that the methods that we've developed for holistic energy intelligence that's combining the imagery with the tracking, with the regulatory data, even with the subsurface models that we've been creating can be applied in certain other ways. You know, for sure, a next level is starting to tie in methane emissions to yeah. on the ground asset and assets and activity. That's something that a lot of people have been asking for. And there are a bunch of satellites today that detect methane, but there's there's none today that can broadly cover a huge area every day or every week. They have to be tasked. They have to be pointed at the thing you want to monitor. So they work for asset monitoring, but they don't work for market intelligence. That's changing. That's going to keep getting better. And we're, we're talking to some of those companies. We're trying to work on integrating that. We do detect the flares now, but that's different. That's heat signature. And okay. you know, with renewables, it's a little different because they're moving electrons, not molecules. And the thing that's from a supply chain standpoint that's fun about oil and gas is that you're moving lots of fluids and materials all the time, all different kinds of places. So there's something to see. Yeah. Once that solar panel's built, you know, there's there's electrons going in a wire and there's kind of nothing to see here. Yeah. Yeah, But with some of the other natural resource industries, and particularly around the space of, of what I'll call carbon management, I think there's a lot of opportunity, not just to measure you know, carbon capture and sequestration, often in old wells or saltwater disposals. Well, can we monitor how much is being captured and injected in addition to how much is being leaked you know, unintentionally other places? But there's a whole field of carbon management, carbon soil capture, things we can do monitoring activities in many different bandwidths over large areas to understand what's happening environmentally in terms of land development, you know, in terms of other types of natural resource management. So I do see us going in that direction and continue to expand those capabilities. You know, the challenge is that as you get into any one of these areas, you know, you get from oil and gas into just the saltwater disposals, they go so deep, literally. Yeah. But you know, it's like from the beginning of our conversation, talking about some of the regulatory stuff that you're just like, who knew, you know? Right. And a lot of times I talk to some of these, you know, I talk to some of these the methane satellite companies and that kind of thing. And they're like, oh yeah, we're just going to put all the well bores on a map and then, you know, show where the methane is. And that tells us who's leaking. And it's like, okay, can I show you a picture of where the well pads are and where the well bore lat longs say the wells are? And you know, it'll overlay these two things. It's like, you see all those red dots that are not anywhere near a well pad. That's where you're going to think the well is. And there is no way there is a well in the middle of that Bucky's. 
you know, or right. there's, there's no way there is a well, you know, in now Midland, there really could be a well in the middle of the golf course, the schoolyard, but still, you know, there's a lot of places where it's like, it is not off in those woods. It's on a well pad and there's not a well pad around there. So, yep. you know, you really do have to understand all this stuff to do anything with it. And I think there's going to be a lot of newbies coming into this space over the coming years being like, oh yeah, we show where your methane leaks are. It's like, they're going to get a lot of, you know, boy, that's not my well, you know, (laughs) don't you pin that on me. I was going to say, you may get some, some people getting real defensive when you start assuming that kind of stuff. So again, it's just fascinating the the potential and you guys certainly seem like you're on the front line of this, this analytics. And I like the term you use market intelligence. I think that's something at least in, I mean, I've been in upstream oil and gas since 2004 on the service side the entire time. And that's something that I think, you know, we're, I would like to hope we're catching up with the times with technology and adopting a lot of this stuff. I think it's what's needed to get us over this hump. And, you know, it's folks like yourself and the rest of Source Water that are helping us get there. But there's a couple of questions I have I wanted to ask you about outside of Source Water, which I think may, may be, for me, interesting at the very least. Someone else might not. But whenever I look at my guests, I always like to cruise through LinkedIn because I always find some interesting information. And two things that I thought were quite interesting, two companies that you, you were a part of and I think helped found. The first one, tell us about Amur.com. <laughs> I am very interested to hear how you got into that and, and what, what that was like. Yeah, well, this was basically late 80s, early 90s. I was in high school. Okay. The internet was not a thing yet. And it became a th- started becoming a thing in the early 90s. And so we were on the front lines of that. And I have a little stupid story about that and get to it. But basically, <laughs> yeah. I had a good buddy in high school and, and, you know, I was, you know, friends with the computer nerds. And we had this idea to start doing a matchmaking service for Valentine's Day at our school using like Scantron forms, which are no way. if you took the SAT, it's the things you fill in with the pencil. Yeah, and we yeah, got yeah. like a used, you know, surplus scantron scanner from the educational testing service literally for like nothing you know that we put in his garage yeah and we started doing these you know valentine's day matchmaking deals and then we we grew that from our school into like hundreds of schools and we put it on the internet in like 1993 and so we needed a domain name and you could get any domain name you wanted back then and we did amour.com like which is French french for love yeah exactly yeah yeah (laughs) <laughs> and so it turned into basically the first online matchmaking service. And Unreal. the dumbest business mistake I ever made was kind of around 95, 96. We had an offer to buy the domain from a company in France that wanted to do online matchmaking in France. And they wanted more.com. And they offered us a you know five-figure amount for this domain name, which I was like, that's crazy. And so we're like, oh, okay, you know, we're on to other things. In particular, oh. I had this opportunity to help start a medical device company in Dallas. Okay. Doing wireless venture. I just I thought, you know, healthcare, healthcare technology, that is the biggest sector of the American economy. I got to get in on that. I mean, no online kidding. matchmaking, kind of seedy, who cares? No. You know, it was fun <laughs> in college. And boy, was that the dumbest thing I ever oh, did. Oh my so, goodness. How much do you think if you'd have kept on to Amour.com, it'd be worth today? Well, here's how I oh here's God. how I console myself. I think, you know, in 99, 2000, 
I would have been one of those guys with like hundreds of millions of dollars in public <laughs> stock. I would have borrowed against all of it on margin. I would have bought some crazy Mark Cuban style pad in you know Dallas or wherever I was living at the time. Yeah. And then the market would have crashed it, you know, in the dot-com bomb. I would have lost all my money and I would have been wiped out. That's what would have happened. <laughs> hey, so I you guess know what? It's okay. It worked out okay. <laughs> you thought of the alternative and it sounds like you made the right decision. Oh boy. Well, it was it was a long five, six years past of my head against the FDA and working on wireless medical devices and something that's only now really coming together. So, I mean, that was sort of, both were sort of ahead of their time, but I will tell you one other kind of early internet day story. Cause it's just, it's, it's one of these dumb little lessons. I've, I've been starting companies since I was 16. I and, love the, the entrepreneurial part, but we almost have to do a round two because I had so many other questions, but I wanted to really focus on source water. But anyway, continue with the story. Yeah. So this is like, again, this is like 1993 and my business partner in what became Amore.com. And he's a computer science major. Okay. And he's saying to me, you know, Josh, there's this thing called the internet. And a lot of computer science, you know, people like me will just kind of spend all day on it because you kind of like go into other people's computers and run programs on other people's computers and like share files. And I'm like, okay, that sounds really boring. And he's like, and I was thinking maybe we could like sell flowers or CDs or books or something, you know, on the internet. And <laughs> I was oh like, this is 1993. God. And I'm like, his oh. name's Jeremy. I'm like, Jeremy, we have a real business here. We got real customers who are paying us real money. Oh my goodness. Let's stay focused. Okay. We're not going to make any money <laughs> selling flowers to computer nerds who can't get a date. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I look back on that and I'm like, you know, one of my business lessons is always keep your ears open because no sometimes kidding. you should go a different way. <laughs> Jeez, that is crazy, man. So Jeremy, obviously he somehow had his crystal ball was pretty clear at that point because there's no telling where you'd be right now. Which well, I he's, mean, had a, he's had a very good career too. He's, you good. know, he worked at Google, he worked at Microsoft. He's, you know, he's with a well-funded startup now in Seattle where we can stay in touch. He's doing very well. Cool. But that is yeah, so that was neat. just one of those like, you know, one of those little business lesson nuggets you learn along the way. Wow. That is too funny. Where are you from originally? I actually grew up in the suburbs of Washington, DC, okay. Bethesda, Potomac, that area. And then I've, and I've lived a bunch of places. Yeah. Interesting. Cause now, and are you here in Houston or where are you located now? We're based in Houston. I actually took my family to, we have a summer beach house up in New Hampshire that got us out of the city for uh, COVID reasons. I got two young kids so they can Beautiful. run around on the beach. and Yeah, good for you. So we've been locking down up here. Yeah. Hey, that's not a bad place to be. Has the weather turning around? I'm sure it's getting de- pretty decent now, huh? It's, it's starting. I mean, it stays chilly, but I mean, my my thing my thing this winter is, you know, you can really, I couldn't go to my exercise class or anything, is I've been learning how to surf in cold water. Oh, wow. Do you drive a dry suit on? A wetsuit, like a five mil wetsuit with a hood. Yeah, yeah. And the water get, got down, probably the coldest got was like 38, 39. But actually, with good wetsuit, I was really never cold. My complaint was about being uncomfortable. Right? Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, you're fighting the waves and like you're getting real warm. You got to hydrate because I mean, you're sweating in that thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my complaint isn't the cold water, it's that my surfing sucks, but that's okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> I get out of there for a few hours, I come back, I feel like I did something, you know, like yeah. I feel kind of beat up. I'm like, okay, I'm ready to eat. No kidding. Good for you. No, that's uh, surfing's tough for anyone who's done it or has tried it. It's talk about a workout. I've tried it. My 
parents retired in Mexico and close to Botter de Navidad. And I've taken a few lessons and, you know, I work out quite regularly and it felt like I had never done anything physical after trying to surf for a couple hours. So, but no, that's fascinating. Just, I guess a little something else about yourself that maybe people didn't know, but again, with the interest of time, I certainly want to let you go. I'm sure you're off to you know, conduct business or whatever it is that, uh, that someone like yourself does on a day-to-day. But uh, I really want to thank you for your time. So if someone's interested to know more about Source Water, what's the best way to reach out to you or, or your team or, you know, anyone within the organization that can help people out? Yeah. Well, our website is www.sourcewater.com. All one word. It's easy. Yeah. My email is josh at sourcewater.com. Perfect. That's the best way to do it. Yeah. Love to hear from anybody. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. And uh, before we log off here, I just want to take a moment to tell everyone about some upcoming OGGN events. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for May 2021. This month, we have four events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our online events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time. So if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our in-person event, which is the 20 YPO's networking mixer at the Houston Club on May 25th. Next, we have our three online events, the Post-Industrial Summit Series from May 4th to June 22nd, the Data Fabric and Data Ops webinar on May 5th, and the Maritime Career Day hosted by Women Offshore on May 21st. Other than these events, OGGN has a live stream this month titled Identifying and Evaluating Advantage Oil Projects on May 5th. So make sure to check that out on our Facebook, LinkedIn, or OGGN.com for more information. You can also find more information about that or any of the live streams or events we have coming up also on Facebook, LinkedIn, or OGGN.com. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for May. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Awesome. Thanks. And anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. Well, again, Josh, thanks for your time. I'm excited to see where you guys end up. I think you're probably at the tip of an iceberg, but again, certainly appreciate it. Is there anything else you'd want the listeners to know about? If not, we'll let everyone run. No, this is this has been great, Justin. It's fun to have a conversation and Look forward to continue to work in this field and, you know, do new stuff and get in front of people. Well, I applaud you for disrupting the industry is what we like to say nowadays. So again, <laughs> my hat's off to you and for everyone out there. Always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.